Welcome to Lawyerly, the podcast for lawyers and those who love them. I'm your host, Sean Kennedy of Herrera Purdy. Today's episode of Lawyerly is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Array. Array manages the logistics of litigation so lawyers can focus on winning their cases. Learn more at trustarray.com. That's trustarray.com. Today, we are continuing our How Are We Doing Now series, where we talk with lawyers who used to work for a law firm called Howry, which was a big, successful firm with over 700 lawyers before it suddenly dissolved and fell into bankruptcy in 2011. At the outset, I want to thank everyone who's been so supportive of Lawyerly. We really appreciate all your feedback. If you like what you hear, we encourage you to subscribe and give us a rating and review on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, we're catching up with former Howery lawyer Jared Kirkwood to talk about what happened to him after Howery collapsed. We also talk about his memories of working at Howery, which are heavily influenced by the fact that he was hired in the midst of the turmoil that ended up sinking the firm around a year later. Jared had some very candid takes, and I learned a few things about him and his background, where, to my surprise, Saddam Hussein even gets involved. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Lawyerly. I'm joined today by Jared Kirkwood, who is general counsel at Aspen Healthcare. Hello, Jared. Welcome to the show. Hey, Sean. Thanks. What is Aspen Healthcare? It sounds a little bit like a pleasant doctor's office somewhere in Colorado, maybe. Yeah, maybe we should be in Colorado. It is a pleasant, uh, it's a pleasant place. Aspen Healthcare um, operates and owns skilled nursing facilities in the state of California. So we do short-term skilled nursing rehab and also have some long-term care residents. Um, We primarily serve the elderly population. Uh, it's been uh, around for about 11 years, and I've been with them for just over two years. How many uh, facilities do you guys have? We currently have 22 facilities. All in California? Yep, all in California. Um, pretty evenly split between uh, or among Southern, Central, and Northern California. What do you do as general counsel for Aspen? Like all in-house lawyers, I handle all the legal uh, needs of the company, advise on uh, risk, uh, risk management, potential liabilities uh, involved in acquisitions, all of our litigation, which can be employee-initiated, resident or resident representative-initiated, or regulatory matters. Uh, so there's a lot, a lot to do. Uh, this was my first real experience with healthcare. When I joined Aspen, I was in house at a software company before I came in house uh, with Aspen. Uh, and those are two opposite ends of the spectrum as far as client base and, and products and services. And uh, obviously, there are some overlap of legal issues, but a lot to learn when you come into uh, the healthcare industry. Now, how long did that take you to learn the business? Uh, two and a half years and going. 
So <laughs> every day it's a, an adventure. Um, I think it's probably a good 12 months before I felt like I was conversant in all of the issues that we faced and uh, could confidently and quickly give advice and input to our executive team on uh, all of the legal, legal issues and business decisions that uh, we face on a day-to-day basis. Now, as the GC of a company that operates skilled nursing facilities, how has your job changed since March 2020? Yeah, COVID has changed lots of things for lots of people, uh, and it has been a beast for those of us in the healthcare industry, specifically and maybe especially uh, long-term care facilities for the elderly. Uh, We, Aspen, I think, um, and our facilities were very aggressive and conservative in how we approached COVID. We were among the very first in the state of California to deny visitation of what we consider non-essential visitors. So that included family members, which is a very tough decision. Uh, It met a lot of uh, pushback and and frustration from family members and residents. It wasn't a decision that we made lightly, but one that we felt we had to make. Uh, And in a matter of weeks, that was the mandate from the California Department of Public Health for all California skilled nursing facilities that they restrict visitation. Uh, we were among the first to require our employees to wear uh, personal protective equipment, uh, all in an effort to try to prevent the introduction of COVID into the facilities and to the extent we did have COVID in a facility to try and mitigate its spread, which is very difficult. It's a very fast uh, spreading contagious disease, can be very harmful to our elderly and, and sick residents. Um, but we've, we've been weathering the storm, I think, very well, uh, have put in place a lot of good measures, uh, but it's, it's kept a lot of us up at night. There's, there's always ongoing issues, very difficult and, and taxing on our employees to be dealing with this 24-7, uh, but they've done a tremendous job, and, and we're hoping that we've got light at the end of the tunnel, just like everyone else around the world. Uh, but yeah, it's certainly created a very different and very complex environment in which to operate skilled nursing facilities. How about for you? Has that made your job a, a little bit longer hours and higher stress? Yeah, it's it's added something that wasn't there before. Uh, so we have all skilled nursing facilities, all healthcare facilities have a reporting requirement both to the state and to uh, residents and in the community. Uh, so that was one thing that we sort of an added responsibility to make sure that we were tracking our numbers correctly, reporting correctly, meeting those obligations. Uh, and then there's, you know, a, a different aspect to risk mitigation, um, identifying those risks and implementing measures to help protect our employees and protect our residents and protect the company. Um, so yeah, it's added some responsibilities and, and some headaches and concerns, but it's been uh, a learning experience just like everything else and we're getting through it. I think most people, when, when they think of COVID and nursing homes, they have a, a picture in their mind of this is ground zero for for the disease and 
Is that a, in your experience, an accurate view of things? There, for whatever reason, is certainly a lot of attention uh, in the media on skilled nursing facilities. Uh, the maybe first big outbreak or, or most well-known outbreak was a skilled nursing facility in the state of Washington, where they had suddenly uh, a very large portion of their population test positive for COVID. They had a number of deaths um, that they attributed to COVID. And that got a ton of media attention, uh, a lot going on in New Jersey and uh, the East Coast. Um, you have the governor of, of New York require skilled nursing facilities to accept COVID positive patients back into their facilities. You had the same thing happen in California, although that hasn't gotten quite the same media attention mm -hmm. that they've got in New York, uh, the California Department of Public Health required skilled nursing facilities to accept COVID positive patients. And this was uh, back in March and April when this was a big, uh, you know, unknown and scary issue in California. Skilled nursing facilities were told that they had to keep um, COVID positive patients in their facilities so that we didn't burden hospitals oh, wow. with a surge of positive patients. Uh, skilled nursing facilities were told that they were required to accept COVID positive patients into their facilities so that we didn't overburden the hospitals. Uh, and it was a very confusing and scary time for a lot of people in skilled nursing because you have the most vulnerable subset of the population in these facilities and you don't want an infection in your facility. Having said that, it's not the death sentence that some people might think it is, even among the elderly and, and the sick. Certainly, a dangerous disease and certainly a higher mortality rate. Um, but we've had many residents who test positive but have no symptoms, many residents who test positive uh, and have symptoms and recover. To go back to your question, I don't know why there's so much focus placed on uh, the skilled nursing industry um, other than, uh, yeah, we have a, a high density, a high population of vulnerable people that, that do succumb to some of the negative aspects of this disease. Yep. What's the best part about your role there? The best part about my role here, and I think for every general counsel in any company, um, in any industry, is the opportunity to get to know the business, uh, get to know the executive team, work with them closely on a day-to-day -day basis and see how they uh, run a successful business, see how they manage people, see how they make decisions, see how they strive every day to make the right decisions uh, for the company and most importantly for the employees. That gets lost a lot, um, I think, especially in, in lawsuits where you have a plaintiff's attorney who think that the company, whatever it is, is, is the worst entity on the planet and, and they're trying to squeeze them for every dime they can get. But running a business and skilled nursing is no different is a series of a thousand decisions. And you're always trying to make those decisions against this backdrop of what's the best thing to do for our, our residents? What's the best thing to do for our employees? And how do we do that and still stay a profitable company that allows us to keep growing, allows us to help other people succeed and, and find joy in serving others, right? It's the, uh, what is it? Do, do good by, 
I forget this saying, do good by being good or, or do well by, I don't know. It's good to be part of that. <laughs> One of it's good to earn a living while you're doing something good for other people. So before Aspen, you worked as in-house lawyer for another company, right? Yeah, it was a software company called Dealer Socket, based in um, San Clemente in Southern California. Although uh, when I joined the company, I was asked to relocate to Draper, Utah and work in one of their um, buildings there. Uh, I worked for them for a little over two years, first brought on as a assistant general counsel and then took over leadership role of the legal team for about a year and a half. And that was interesting. Dealer Socket provides software products to auto dealerships, everything that they need to run their, their dealerships and sell cars. And that was an interesting experience. What's your general philosophy toward um, how the legal role uh, fits in with the executive team at a company like yours? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's this misconception that the lawyers are the ones who always say no and the ones who um, create roadblocks or obstacles. And I don't think that's true at all. In-house counsel's responsibility, general counsel's responsibility is to uh, identify risk uh, and to advise the business on uh, those risks and how to best achieve their goals uh, with those risks in mind. So I never tell a internal client, whether that's the CEO or, or the operations director or the HR director. Well, I shouldn't say never. I very rarely tell them, no, you can't do that. Uh, I have a, engage in a conversation with them and talk about what their end goal is, uh, what the possible risks are associated with a course of action, what a better course of action might be, uh, but what we might give up uh, towards a business objective if, if we take a less uh, risky approach. And so it's, it's fantastic to engage with business folks and talk about those, the decision-making process, talk about those objectives, and really try to find creative ways to meet those objectives with the least amount of risk possible. How do you go about selecting outside counsel to work with you? Uh, it's another good question. It's, I think for me, it's been past relationships, uh, you know, working at a, at a firm, uh, growing a network, getting introduced to uh, folks who have sp specialized knowledge in, in different areas that we need. Um, and it's also a, a trial by error or, or a decision by uh, experience, I guess. Uh, we, I've had some outside counsel that, you know, initially was great, but then as the relationship goes on, it's clear that, you know, we want to move in a different direction. So I'm, I'm not one that believes that you should choose one um, outside firm and, and stick with it for uh, all time. Uh, there is some, obviously some benefits for an outside firm that knows your business and knows uh, the types of issues that you deal with and, and you can go to them uh, routinely. But I think it's also a good idea to have a, uh, a number of different outside resources that can help you um, because they all, have, they all have different talents and abilities and, and can help you out with different issues. So before you went in-house, you were a big law litigator for a while. What was it like to make the move from big law firm to in-house role? 
Uh, it was like crawling out of a dark, damp cave into uh, the light with flowers and chirping birds. <laughs> no, it really was great. I, I liked my um, law firm experience, um, mostly like the contacts and, and the people that I worked with. Uh, but there's something about freeing yourself from the chains of billable hours um, in that uh, constant stress of, am I working too much? Am I not working enough? Um, when's my next you know, project going to come in? How am I going to get these hours? So that really, I think a lot of in-house attorneys say that, that you know, once you feel the weight of billable hours off your shoulders, it's a, it's a whole new bright world out there. And, uh, and that's true. You're not anxious to go back to tracking your time? Nope, I'm not. <laughs> Can't see that happening. Uh, so when did you first think, you know what, I really want to be a lawyer? The second I knew I wasn't going to go to medical school, I knew that, okay, the law is right for me. It's a good fallback. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I've always been interested in the law, even as a kid. Um, you know, liked the uh, the lawyer movies, liked Tom Cruise, um, you know, running around uh, trying to escape the mob and, and everything else. But um, so it w that interest was always there. I, I did think that when I started college, I was going to be a doctor, uh, but it only took maybe three semesters for me to realize that, nope, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a lawyer. So you, I know, have a military background as well. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I spent a number of years in the Army, um, all in. I was in the military for 14 years. Uh, about six of those years were active duty, different active duty stints. Stints. I did a lot of um, work for the Nas National Security Agency back east in Maryland. Um, you were a spy? I was a spy. I was a spy. <laughs> uh, spying on the Russians, in fact. I was a Russian linguist. I spent a year early on in Monterey, California, uh, learning Russian through immersion uh, by uh, native speakers. It was a five-day-a-week, um, eight hours a day, speaking Russian with an old, sweet Russian babushka that would uh, <laughs> try and teach us all the ins and outs of speaking Russian. Do you still know Russian? Yeah, I can still speak a little, uh, understand more than, than I can speak, but um, don't really have much use for it these days. Interesting. So you, you trained as a, as a linguist, and then, then what? Sig signals intelligence uh, operative, yeah, that's right. Um, did that for a while. Um, I did uh, get activated and spent a year um, in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom, spent some time in Iraq and Baghdad. Um, at first, we were assigned to the 10th Special Forces Group as their um, as remote um, interrogation teams, mobile interrogation teams in northern Iraq, uh, which would have been interesting, except nothing really went on in northern Iraq. So we were reassigned to Baghdad, assigned to the Iraq survey group, and were tasked with finding the ever-elusive weapons of mass destruction. So that's what we did six days a week 
for about six solid months. Uh, we went out on daily missions to all these predetermined sites where a bunch of intelligence geeks uh, in the CIA and NSA uh, knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that these sites contained all of the evidence and stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction that Saddam had been working on for several years. And Very interesting. <laughs> yeah, perhaps to no one's surprise, we didn't find anything. So we either failed miserably in our mission or there just weren't uh, WMD throughout Iraq. So it was all your fault, is what you're saying? I think so. We, we let down the country. <laughs> we let down the president. Uh, and just couldn't find those darn things. Did you ever find anything noteworthy? Yeah, we found lots of um, stockpiles of munitions, uh, stockpiles of materials to make ricin, um, to make uh, poisonous gas, to make illegal weapons of mass destruction. We mm. found lots of uh, documented evidence of intent and hopes to mm. acquire or make weapons of mass destruction. Um, there's no question that that was the Hussein regime's uh, desire and goal, um, but they they hadn't gotten to the point where they had stockpiles of, of WND ready to deploy and cause mass destruction throughout. So it, it was... Um, it was interesting to go through that. We, we Our area of responsibility was in the southern half of Iraq, mostly. Um, so in a six-month period of time, we drove more than 10,000 miles throughout the Iraqi countryside on these daily missions, and it was interesting. That is really interesting. Um, and then when did you get out of the military? About a month after I started law school. So I got out in October 2006. I'd started law school in September 2006 at Georgetown, um, but got out free and clear from the military. Had, had thought about maybe staying in in the reserves for a bit, um, but didn't want to. I'd already had my undergraduate uh, interrupted twice for deployments. One right after 9-11, which I did a, a stateside uh, deployment and worked on a national security agency mission. Um, and then uh, two months after I got home from that, I redeployed to Iraq. And so I kind of had enough of having my schooling interrupted with deployment. So I got out once I started law school. So where was your first job out of law school? First job out of law school was with uh, the great firm of Howery, LLP. And I worked in their Orange County, Irvine office. Now, what drew you to a law firm that promised uh, a boot camp program for summer associates? Yeah, that was uh, interesting. It, it, didn't, um, it didn't dissuade me at all. Uh, I had interviewed with a number of firms. Um, I had some offers um, and Howery, the, the thing that drew me the most to Howery wasn't necessarily the uh, uh, boot camp program for summer associates, but it was the uh, small, smallish office of 30 attorneys in Orange County, California, uh, one of the greatest places on earth. Um, 
but being part of a large international law firm with um, you know big big clients and big cases and um, lots of resources in a in a small Southern California office was um, the perfect fit in my mind. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll come right back to talk about Howry. Lawyer Lee is brought to you today by our presenting sponsor, Array. With offices throughout the nation, Array is the litigation support partner that delivers speed, accuracy, and unmatched service. Array manages the logistics of litigation, so lawyers can focus on winning their cases. For information on their discovery, managed review, deposition, alternative dispute resolution, and subpoena services, visit trustarray.com. That's trustarray.com. And now back to the show. All right, so welcome back. Now, you ended up being at Howry for like a year and a half, right? Uh, that's correct. Um, so I started September of 2009 and left in December 2000, well, it was either December or January uh, 2010, January 2011, just a couple of months before Howry's infamous uh, demise. When you think back on the time you spent at Howry, are those fond memories for you? Uh, mostly, yeah. It, it was great working with the uh, partners and associates at Howry in that Irvine office. Uh, I worked in the litigation uh, practice group, the business litigation group, um, which was, I don't know, maybe 12 to 15 attorneys total, um, I think, when we started. Um, the other attorneys in the office uh, did IP work, IP litigation. Uh, I was able to work a little bit with them, but mostly all my time spent with the litigation practice group and just tremendously talented attorneys, uh, top to bottom, uh, for the most part, very professional. And it was, uh, it was great. It, there was a lot of, um, a lot of pressure and, and it was a lot of that pressure was due to the weird circumstances and environment that we were in in the legal industry in 2009, right? So we had the bottom fall out of the market. Um, fall, uh, law students were getting their offers. You know, my, my same class year, they were getting, and classmates were getting offers rescinded. Uh, they were getting them deferred for a year. All sorts of different things were going on. Um, our summer class, uh, so for our Irvine office, we had three summer associates, and at the beginning of the summer, everyone thought that, well, I think the office fully intended to give three offers, um, but because of the way things changed, they could only give one offer. Uh, and I apparently bribed the right people to <laughs> be able to get that offer, which I was thankful for. Um, but they had, they initially had deferred our start date to say, well, you're going to start in November, not in September. And then we had the strangest, uh, most ridiculous phone call with one of the Howry <laughs> um, 
the the one of the inner circle of Bob Ruyak uh, got all 26 or 28 incoming associates from my class and and we had a big conference call and they, they, this master spin doctor I, I can't remember his name um, but he he was uh, he was a legend he he <laughs> starts the call and he says hey we're we're really excited that you're all going to come and we've got great news for you. Uh, instead of starting in November, you're going to start in September, and we've got a, a great new program that we're going to roll out. It's it's one of a kind, never seen before. Uh, it's going to be like an apprenticeship model, like we're back in the 19th century or something. So it's, you're going to come on, you're going to uh, split your 2100 hours a year three ways, 700 of it's going to be working on client matters, 700 of the hours are going to be spent on... Uh, pro bono work where you're going to get in, you know, handle the whole case, get into trial, everything else. And then 700 is going to be part of this uh, training program where you're going to do intensive writing and uh, basically have another one to two years tacked onto your law school experience. It's going to be great. You guys are going to love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we're cutting your salary by 25%. Any questions? <laughs> so <laughs> everyone's on this call. You can hear a pin drop uh, and... Was there Finally, a slow clap someone... at the end of it? <laughs> <laughs> there was no slow clap. There was just uh, everyone probably mute their phones and were gasping like, what? What are you talking about? So finally, some brave soul was able to say, wait a minute. What do you mean you're cutting our salaries? We have, you know, offer letters to get paid. Um, you know, the the top salaries, market salaries in these places. And we've made... Uh, a lot of decisions in reliance to these offers, and he cuts them. Up. Well, who 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 is this? What's your name? <laughs> Silence. <laughs> He's like, no, no, no. I, I'm not asking what your name is because you're going to get in trouble. I just, you know, just want to know who I'm talking to. And the person, I don't remember uh, who it was. It was uh, she. She goes, Melissa. He's like, okay, Melissa. Melissa, who? Uh, you know, she gives her full name. It's like, okay, well, you know, I'd love to argue the merits of whether or not we actually gave you an offer that you could rely on and starts getting, you know, very lawyerly in, in talking about this whole thing. And, and all of us are just, you know, in just blown away of what's going on. Uh, but he effectively shut down the discussion because nobody dared ask him a question after that because, you know, he's going to take down their names. Sure. And so we're just kind of like, well, what else are we going to do? So we're going to start this Howery apprenticeship. We're going to ha have a little less money to work with in the first year or two. Uh, let's do it. Which I'll say that program, I don't, I don't know if any firms do anything like it um, these days. Um, but but for the cut in salary, um, and by the way, this idea that they had been planning to do this forever is total nonsense, right? They I guess to their credit, they were trying to still have an incoming class. They're trying to make the best out of this bad situation, keep everyone employed. Um, you know, whether or not they were being completely open to the partnership on what the financial state of the firm was, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, setting all that aside, the program itself, I thought, was, for the most part, pretty great. So we were splitting our time between actual cases. That was great. Uh, we were working on these pro bono cases, and I, I was able to get in and argue dispositive motions in state mm. court. I did, uh, you know, was the second chair of a trial in federal court with, uh, you know, the Honorable Martha Gooding as, as first chair, and what a tremendous experience that was. 
you know, in that first year and couple of months, I was in the courtroom more than I ever have been since then, right? So just a, a great experience. Um, the other third part of that, the 700 hours of, of training um, was pretty good. So we got to work closely with a gentleman named Ben Opipari, uh, who is mm -hmm. a fantastic writer, and he spent uh, hours and hours with us working on persuasive writing and, and how uh, to write in a way that really subtly um, gets your point across. And, and that was a tremendous experience. The, the part of that third um, aspect of this apprenticeship program that was kind of silly was we were put in these, these groups. We had peer groups of like seven, uh, seven associates and we would fly to San Francisco or, or LA once a month and meet in these groups. And it was like a group counseling, right? We'd sit there and complain about <laughs> things and talk about our, what's going on. And, and I guess there is some benefit and utility to that, but it just kind of felt most of the time silly and, and a waste of money and time. But ultimately, um, all of that, uh, changed as as Howery was facing its own um i guess mortality uh, so we sort of stopped mm -hmm. doing those fluff things um we were still working on pro bono matters and and to the extent there was other work to do we were working on that but um yeah we uh, in in the fall and winter of 2010 it became very clear that um many or most of the partners were going to leave uh, for various reasons, but um, I guess ultimately because it was clear that the firm was no longer financially viable. Um, and so a group of us, uh, I think seven from the litigation uh, practice group, literally walked across the street in uh, Park Plaza in Irvine and joined the offices of Morgan Lewis uh, in, um, in the building next door. So that was another great move and new opportunities. You know, I didn't remember that about the apprenticeship program or the apprentice program until you said it. Well, that's because you didn't have all your um, law school classmates teasing you <laughs> for a year <laughs> straight that you're an apprentice and not a, a real attorney. So. Yeah, there's some emotional scars there. <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah. Um, that is that is fascinating, though. I, I think it is symptomatic, looking back on it, of uh, a law firm that is is scrambling, right, to uh, to meet the challenges that it was facing. And you come in um, in the midst of that, and right after the the big financial crisis and um you're you're thrown right into the right into the fire as as a junior associate you're definitely not you know kept up to date on a lot of things um given given the fullest of information what was that that time of uncertainty like for you yeah, so that would have been the biggest um, downside uh, of working at Howard, right? So as we were getting, leaving summer, getting into fall of 2010, um, you know, more senior associates, certainly the partners uh, knew that things were bad. 
Um, so there were, uh, you know, a lot of closed doors. Uh, there was kind of a, a dark cloud in the office. Um, and, you know, the younger associates were, yeah, trying, you know, begging to get information. Um, and for different reasons, you know, the partners couldn't, couldn't be open and, and um, fully disclose what was going on. Uh, so it was tough. It was tough to believe that there was something wrong with the firm. Um, and then, you know, the rumor mill, mills uh, on social media and, and different law blogs back then um, was in full force. Um, so, yeah, it, it was tough. You you wanted to, you know, put your nose to the grind or put your nose down and, and, and work and and produce and prove your worth. But at the same time, you were genuinely nervous that you weren't going to have a job uh, on Monday. And, um, you know, one year into your legal career, you find yourself trying to look for other op- opportunities in one of the worst uh, environments in the legal industry in, in, you know, memory. So it was, it was tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that my memories of that time, yeah, there were a lot of closed door meetings. There were a lot of rumors. There was a lot of who's going with whom, where, and, you know, I, are they going to be able to take people with them? You know, all those kinds of questions that as a, uh, as someone lower on the totem pole, you don't have full visibility into. So uh, one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast even was I imagine there are a lot of people in that kind of situation right now. Yeah, I think that's right. We're, we're in another kind of interesting um, environment and, and tough for a lot of folks. And I'm sure a lot of people are thinking about, well, what's, you know, what, what is money going to bring? And it's tough. It's tough to um, focus on the work that you want to do uh, when you have those, the cloud of uncertainty of, of job security and, and financial security. And if you've got a family, how are you going to provide for your family? If you've got crushing law school debt, how are you going to pay for your law school debt? All sorts of things. So you had a a soft landing, like a lot of people ended up having, when um, going with groups of people to different firms. Um, what was a a career highlight for you, post Howry? Well, I don't know about career highlights, but um, working. So the the situation at Morgan Lewis was remarkably similar to the situation at, at Howry at a large um, international firm, I, I think by lawyer count, the largest firm in the United States. Uh, but we had this small, cohesive, uh, fun office in, in Orange County. You know, we it had about 30 attorneys. Um, they had, uh, instead of having a business litigation group and an IP litigation group. You had a business litigation group and then a employment litigation group and one of the best employment litigation groups um, in Orange County and still one of the best employment litigation groups in uh, Orange County um, and a a lot of really good attorneys. So it was not only was it, you know, so uh, relief, such a big relief 
And I was so grateful that I had this soft landing place, was able to leave Howery before they actually um, wound up and, and got to go uh, to a new firm, but got to go and work with great people and, uh, and in the same type of environment and firm that, that drew me to Howery and drew me to Orange County in the first place. So that was great. One, um, I don't know if it's a highlight, but maybe one of the most interesting experiences that I'll always remember is I um, got brought in to work on a um, employment litigation matter as a class action lawsuit um, filed against uh, a big oil company. Um, and I got to make the nice drive up to beautiful, scenic Bakersfield, California. Uh, and from there, I would drive an hour out into these oil fields and um, conduct these interviews of oil hands um, th that worked on these oil rigs uh, all day long for like a week straight. Uh, and I, you know, <laughs> I was told, you know, they're, they're going to be in there like, they're out there working, right? These are doing hard work and intensive labor and they are dressed and, and conduct themselves the way you might think that somebody who works in that type of job uh, would dress and conduct themselves. And I'm trying to dress down as much as I can, right? And I still stick out like an idiot <laughs> out there and, and I'm this lawyer and they, they don't know if I'm the attorney representing them or their company or, or the plaintiff's attorney. Uh, and so had some very interesting um, sometimes contentious interviews. Yeah, I try to explain that I represent their company and the company's trying to defend this lawsuit and we just want to get some information and want their honest assessments. And uh, some employees didn't quite understand who I represented. So, you know, they started like, Oh, I want, I want to tell you something, but you can't tell anyone else. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I absolutely will tell somebody else, but I, you know, just, just so we're clear on that. Go ahead, but yeah, know that this isn't a confidential secret. <laughs> I mean, so that was uh, that was an interesting case to work on. Sounds like it. My uh, so, in case listeners haven't gathered, uh, Jared and I worked together at both Howery and Morgan Lewis. We were part of the same team that that moved from Howery to Morgan Lewis. Uh, did you work on the Radical Bunny case? You you better believe it. That one almost spanned my entire uh, big firm uh, career. I think you guys had started that when I joined the firm, um, and yeah, that was a that was a a case that just kept on going and going and and what a name, Radical Bunny. <laughs> what a name! That's, that's the actual name. Of an entity that was at the center of uh, this series of lawsuits and investigations. Um, yeah, I have that's... fond memories of going to uh, Phoenix in 110 degree heat and being uh, neck deep in documents in a um, storage shed somewhere. Um, <laughs> I was going to bring that one up. Great. <laughs> yeah, tell us about that. <laughs> just miles and miles of documents and, and trying to find, um, I don't even remember what we're working for, looking for. We're basically, it's basically a thousand different cases within this case, right? Uh, these, um, folks who are investing their life savings into different, um, uh, commercial real estate, um, 
bridge loans or gap loans, I think, and we were tasked with uh, finding and, and verifying amounts invested, uh, whether whether interest or dividends were, were paid or rolled over into new investments, and it was uh, just endless sifting through dirty, <laughs> dusty documents in a, in a hot storage shed, uh, and you just had um, armies of attorneys from different firms uh, in there sometimes arguing with each other about how to do things. And um, I, I remember uh, I spent, uh, so I was out there with, with Heather Porter, Heather Condon, Heather Condon Porter. Um, and she's kind of this, um, I don't want to, I don't want to say s- small, but she's a slight kind of meek um, uh, person but she was she was not going to be bulldozed by any of these uh you know overbearing aggressive attorneys from these other big firms um and i remember we were having discussions about how we needed to look at certain boxes and and some attorneys from another firm said hey we're just going to look at these boxes and we're going to mark them so you don't have to look at them again and she you know was like no no, we're going to look at every document. This way we're going to do it. I don't care what you say. You don't pay my bills. And it was great. Uh, she she was not going to be um, told what to do, and she wasn't intimidated. And um, I was like, yeah, Heather, that's right. We aren't going to be pushed around by these guys. Yeah, that's the apocryphal uh, story about going out to warehouses and searching through mountains of paper documents, but you had the additional uh, benefit of doing that in Arizona summer. Just couldn't get any better. Yeah. So I'm going to wrap up here by asking you a few rapid fire type questions. Uh, What's your favorite thing to do to unwind? Uh, Golf. What's your longest drive? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, with uh, the wind helping me, I've gotten it out there um, just over 330 yards. That's a lot lot longer than me. It's okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you have a favorite lawyer joke? Uh, favorite lawyer, I don't know about a favorite one, but the one that always comes uh, to mind is uh, what do you have when you have uh, an attorney up to his or her neck in cement? Not enough cement. Not enough cement, yeah. <laughs> a speed bump, a good start. There's lots of different uh, answers to that one. They almost all, almost all good lawyer jokes involve the death of the lawyer or many lawyers. I think lawyers, that's a requirement, yes. right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> all right, I'll tell you one. Uh, what's the difference between a lawyer and a trampoline? Ooh, what is the difference? You take off your shoes before you jump on a trampoline. There you go. <laughs> It's appropriate. Yes. Uh, what's your position on lawyer shows? I I like them, um, and it's kind of like the same thing with military shows, right? There are some people who, if if they're going to watch a lawyer show and they happen to be a lawyer, they're like, oh, that is <laughs> that's not the way it happens. Or you know, guys who've served in the military and they're watching a, a show that's a military show or whatever. Oh, that's so false. That would never happen. Like, yeah, that's that's why it's on TV. So you know, <laughs> suspend. 
reality and just enjoy it for what it is. But yeah, I like lawyer shows. Uh, why is My Cousin Vinny the best lawyer movie ever? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it just is, right? Like, why, why is the sky blue? Someone can articulate why it is, but most people just take it for, uh, for granted that that is fact. That, that is fact. It, Dan, uh, it, and it's got to be, I was going to call him Danny DeVito. It's not Danny DeVito. Um, Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci. Yep. He, he's, he's why it's the greatest movie. Yes. <laughs> Lawyer movie. Uh, what's one thing you've learned about yourself during the COVID crisis? Um, that I... Well, I think I already knew this. I don't like being told that I can or can't do something. I guess I don't like being told I can't do something. It's fine if someone wants to tell me that I can't can do something, but yeah, I don't like being told that I can't do things that I feel like I should be able to do. That's fair. That's fair. Jared, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. I look forward to uh, more podcasts and more guests and getting entertained. That's all the time we have for today. Special thanks to Jared Kirkwood for joining us. And thanks as well to our presenting sponsor, Array. You can learn more about Array at trustarray.com. Join us again next time as we continue the How Are We Doing Now series here on the Lori Lee Podcast. And again, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to Lori Lee and help us get the word out by giving Lori Lee a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Production services for today's episode are by Four Hours of Sleep. And the music for the show is by Rhythmic Revival. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Kennedy of Herrera Purdy. Thank you.